How much of what we see and hear about the economy and financial markets is fake news? And how can we best make use of what the media tells us? I'm producer Andy Last, and that's what we'll discuss today on Your Money, Your Wealth with our guest, Oliver Rennick from TD Ameritrade Network. Plus, the hosts of YMYW, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA, have some suggestions on contributing to your Roth 401k instead of your traditional 401k, where to stick those bonds, and we discuss a call from a listener who thinks that a certain proponent of the financial independence, retire early, or fire movement is a lucky hippie moron. But first, since we've asked a heavy-hitting guest to join us today to talk about the markets and media, we're bringing in our own heavy hitter, Pure Financial Advisors Director of Research, Brian Perry, CFP, CFA. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Oh, very welcome, although heavy hitter made it sound like I've been eating too many burgers lately. I don't know how to take that. <laughs> Now, Brian is a regular guest on TD Ameritrade Network's Market on Close with Oliver Rennick. So today, we decided to turn the tables and bring Oliver Rennick to YMYW. He is, in addition to hosting Market on Close, he's also the host of Morning Trade Live on TD Ameritrade Network. And before that, he was at Bloomberg and the bond buyer. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Glad to be here in a little role reversal. I welcome it. So for the uninitiated, can you yeah. tell us about TD Ameritrade Network and about the shows that you host? Absolutely. Uh, thanks again for having me on, guys. Uh, and uh, it's good to see Brian. And now I know the pain of having to go through a Skype setup that we make uh, everybody do <laughs> on a daily basis. The TD Ameritrade Network is uh, a pretty simple concept. Basically, we launched this about two years ago now to offer a, a direct-to-consumer, over-the-top financial network that is just purely financial news. I kind of uh, bring the analogy to the sports world is an easy place to consider what our value add is, if you only like hockey and you turn on ESPN and that's your sports go-to, you have to wait for baseball, you got to wait for football, et cetera, et cetera. The hockey network is all hockey all the time. You know what you're getting. That's basically what we are and what we aim to do for investors, traders, generally active people who either manage money for individuals or trade and invest on their own. So the network itself is eight hours a day in terms of live content. There's an educational bent to some of our programming for those that are beginning traders or beginning investors. The shows that I host, Morning Trade Live and Market on Close, are a little bit more news-oriented, but within everything we do, there's always a push for utility. It's utility over entertainment is the best way to describe it, and you know what you're going to get. No matter what time of day you turn on TD Ameritrade Network, you're getting market analysis, and I tell people that, you know, hey, if you're not interested in market analysis, then it might bore you because – as much as we love it, as much as fun I have doing it, that's what it is. It is about trying to find answers for why things are happening and help people understand how markets and investing works, basically. You know, so you mentioned uh, traders and investors using the network. And to me, yeah. sometimes those are two different subsets of people, right? I mean, traders, a much shorter time frame, and then investors, a little bit yep. longer. How do you see those two groups? And maybe we'll start with traders. How do traders use, yeah. whether it's TD or any financial information? You know, I think that the group of traders, even within itself, is kind of a spectrum, right? You have people who literally look at intraday activity, and then you have people who might describe themselves as traders, but just buy and long stocks over, you know, intermediate time frames of months to maybe years. There are people that are active in the more complex instruments. There are options traders. For investors, for me, that is kind of the importance of the distinction is that investors can be money managers. They can be RIAs. To me, that's a big part of our audience that I try and access 
for some of our more short-term and options-oriented traders, uh, a show like Fast Market in the middle of the day is more geared to those that are looking at making, say, like an earnings trade around a particular company. They have a view on how Canada Goose is going to do this quarter. They want to put on option spread. And that is definitely, to your point, a very different type of investor. I think there's a good bit of overlap in terms of if you want to be a quote-unquote successful trader, and I, I think that within itself is a, is a hard thing to define, but you have to still have an understanding, I think, of some of the macro forces that all intertwine. So I, I think even for short-term people, there's a fair amount of overlap between what the longer-term investor also looks at. So my goal is to, on the one hand, we kind of separate these things. Look, here's an option strategy, a spread ahead of this earnings that they might do on fast market, but that company also fits into a broader macro scheme of, let's say, retail spending and direct-to-consumer to, to stay with the Canada Goose example. So I'm always trying to connect kind of the web between short and long-term. So how do you see people misusing or mistaking trading and investing? I mean, one thing we see a lot is somebody thinks they're an investor and then they watch something on TV and they see a news headline and they panic and get out of what was supposed to yeah. be a short-term headline. Um, right. So, so how, how do the average consumer, how can they differentiate between something that should only affect a trader versus something that should affect an investor? I think it's a good question. Um, and it's hard to know really um, what news should or should not affect. You know, part of me is um, when I look at a news item, kind of the first thing I do is, is try and distinguish what you're describing, which is, do we present this as something that is potentially game changing for um, a company or a theme or a trend? Or is it a headline, basically, that shouldn't have lasting impact? I think the easiest ex example of how to approach that from a news perspective is probably by looking at you know tweets and trade and this type of stuff where we have a volatility-induced White House, geopolitics, all that type of stuff. For us, we don't even venture into the political analysis. It's so far away. But if there's something from the political realm that is a catalyst for a company that's now going to have to deal with obviously a tariff input that goes directly onto their bottom line, then that becomes relevant. But something like where we wake up to Steve Mnuchin saying 90% of the trade deal is done, it's important to try and add context, I think, that people don't all of a sudden change their view of the status quo, because this is something that we've heard multiple times. And, and I think approaching that news with that perspective was very useful, because as we saw during the trading day, it didn't offer that much of a lift because we've heard this type of language so many times. But it is a very difficult thing to do. And you know what I try to do is remain somewhat agnostic, which is not really tell the viewer whether or not something is going to change fundamentally based on a headline, but really try and analyze it and let them make that decision by really examining both sides of this. Hey, is this a big deal or is it not a big deal? Here's the case for big deal. Here's the case for not. Now, you create media, you consume media. What effect does having this constant input have on how you personally invest? Yeah. Oh, I just kind of started getting going uh, <laughs> since I came here. It was kind of impossible not to. Uh, you know, I always just kind of let my, you know, 401k and standard, uh, you know, additions from the paycheck go into the longer term. I never really thought about it too much. Since I've come here, uh, I've gotten a little bit more interested in and kind of dabble within my own investment. But I, I think the biggest thing that changed in the way I view the investment philosophy is I have a little bit more belief in the concept of sort of active 
management in terms of the opportunity to derive alpha in financial markets. From When I was at Bloomberg, I took a very top-down way of viewing things. Bloomberg is very much economic and cycle-driven analysis, where when I wrote about the stock market, it was more about how much visibility do we have in earnings over some you know, forward period, and what does that mean for the market? What does it mean for uh, how does it reflect based on the economy? Here we have that, but then we also have, well, let's look at these companies and let's also see what they're telling us on a micro basis. And it's amazing the way these two kind of schools of thought have merged in my own interpretation of markets in a way that is very additive and I, I think has really enhanced the way I think about markets. Corporate earnings has been a big part of that in watching companies because when you're looking from the top down, it's a very useful way. It's kind of a, a Ray Dalio type of cycles way of viewing things. But when you also are looking at so many companies that we do on a, on a daily basis, you start to see breadcrumbs being left. And when I look at others who view things from a strictly kind of macro sense, they do miss things. Um, and you have to be careful not to extrapolate those micro details into something bigger, but they definitely offer, I think, a great deal of information that if you are kind of removed from them, you might miss. And then I think also just the return of volatility to markets has really shown that doing research and having sort of a system can really be beneficial. That may be a turning point, it may not. We're going to find out basically. But for many, I think there are the seeds of being sown to a period in which just strictly getting top level exposure to markets may not cut it anymore. Why has it been so hard to generate alpha? Is it because of the top-down nature of the analysis that's driven markets lately? Because it, it does make sense on some level intuitively that if you study a company in great detail, try to figure out where it's going and know a little bit more about it than anybody else, you should be able to predict where it's going to go. And yet the statistics continue to bear out that very few people yep. can do that again and again. Why is yep. that the case? It's you know it's it's something that is um, that I've been grappling with for a while and I and I think it's a um, it's a it's a very difficult thing um, to answer. I think that from a, I'll start from kind of a a general kind of decade and during this recovery analysis, which is I, I think that up until now it has been such a a, a macro driven story with central bank coordination. I think that it's been very difficult for active managers and the performance has been so poor during this period because of essentially forces that are new and are, I think by most analyses, I think it's fair to say, have generally been very risk on. Um, and I think that, that we're gonna see how long that effect has, right? An unprecedented period of zero interest rates um, around the world and suddenly you have a lot more risk taking. That's the idea, right? Um, in many ways, I think it has worked to kind of compress that cycle, uh, the business cycle, the economic cycle, in a way that it has been more advantageous to just say, look, people are going to take risk and they're going to buy things and there's going to be growth. So why try and pick which is going to grow more than the other? Um, that being said, I think that there is um, a potential for that kind of regime to shift a little bit. I'll give the example of the airlines, which I think is a, is a good place to start, um, because over the past year, what you have is more competition, because as the pie of the economy kind of shrinks a little bit, as we have slowness potentially arriving, what you have is a lot of M&A, what you have is a lot of margin pressure 
for certain industries that are showing up first. The Staples Group is another great example. If you look at a chart of the Staples companies, you've got big winners and you've got big losers. You have companies that are able to pass on price because they have a good brand and there is now a cyclical pressure from input prices that is causing delineation between company performance. Airlines are pretty similar. Uh, United Air came out last year and Oscar Minot's CEO said, look, we know that things are going to get competitive. There's a strong consumer we want to take advantage of. And so we're going to add on more mileage and we're going to add on more capacity. That threw up a big red flag along the airlines group and everybody dropped. But in retrospect, United Air kind of biting the bullet on what they saw from their industry going forward was actually a great move for them. And the company's done very well next to most of its peers. And, and I suspect that unless we get through this kind of rough patch with transition in central bank policy, that you're probably going to see more of that. So to kind of not to be too long winded, but to come back to your point is if you believe sort of in the concept of alpha, I like to play poker. And in poker, it certainly exists because humans eventually make mistakes. If you think you can make fewer mistakes than your opponent in poker, this concept of alpha definitely exists, which is why is Matt Damon tells you in rounders, the same guys sit at the table every year. To a certain extent, that logic should also apply to markets. It's just much harder because of all the different pieces moving. So as long as people are doing it, my view is I'm going to give them the best analysis that they possibly can to make sure that they're starting on an even playing field with everybody else as much as possible. Now, you know I'm going to say this at the end of the podcast, but just a quick reminder here, this show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Check out the transcript and the video of our interview with Oliver Rennick in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. I promise they will be there soon if they're not there already. And speaking of market volatility, that is the subject of this week's episode of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Watch it and get yourself a copy of our white paper, Pursuing a Better Investment Experience, in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You know, one of the keys in, well, in poker or in investing is keeping emotion out of it, right? I mean, if you get yeah. too tied up or too afraid to make the big bet when you should in poker, you're probably not going to be successful. And when yeah. it comes to investing, I, I really think emotions are an investor's worst enemy, right? I mean, yeah. we're not hardwired as human beings to be successful investors. So a lot of it comes down to putting steps into place to put some sort of discipline to avoid making emotional mistakes. And mm -hmm. while financial media is fantastic for the information it provides, I think sometimes having constant access to information can... Kills the emotion. It, exactly, right? Yeah. It, it, it prompts emotions, right? And, and TD uh, networks way better than some of the outlets, but some outlets will just be screaming headlines over everything, right? Um, right. How can an investor separate or, or put steps into place in order to consume information that can make them a better investor, but at the same time not be overly emotional based on the information they're taking in? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I think step number one is to be as quantitative as possible. And that doesn't mean you have to you know, be an MIT math grad. It means to be data-oriented. And that, I think, was kind of the first step towards building the way we do our news shows on the network. At Bloomberg, I, I just basically spent all day in Excel and, and going through data and, and really just trying to approach markets from a very agnostic and kind of objective perspective on, I don't care if they go up, I don't care if they go down. What's the best way to think about this data? You know, essentially it is very analogous to kind of what sell-side banks do, but whether or not they have motive to be bullish or bearish on any given company or the market as a whole is something I think is legitimately up for debate. 
So what I try to do and what we try to do on the network is start with that main building block of objectivity. So the first step is that is the removal of anything that doesn't really have to do with markets, which is why we don't go into the social news. We don't go into the politics stuff um, with the exception as being a catalyst because then it sort of takes on the form of data. So I think the first step to doing that is to look at data, to let that be your sort of guiding path. And then also just trying to learn and consume as much as you can. There's, there's a growing, I think, support for the average investor that has leveled the playing field in a really positive way over the past decade, of course, with indexes and ETFs, but the research being done, the coverage that's improved, and um, other places, uh, Ritholtz, I think, does a really good job, their team, of educating people on how the statistics and the data support the idea of removing emotion and sort of trusting, not necessarily the system, but kind of trusting history to some extent on why certain tactics are, are better than others. And that, you know, if you really believe that you have some degree of information that can deliver you some alpha, then, you know, fine. It's a free world. Do what you want. But I think that having access to data has been huge to leveling that playing field. The democratization of data and finance is, I think, a big thing. You don't have to have a $25,000 Bloomberg terminal anymore to get very good data on markets. And you don't have to be an inside guy anymore to understand sort of what has worked over time. And I, and I think that's really the biggest thing, educating yourself and having information at your fingertips in terms of data. What sources do you trust? Um, I trust, uh, I trust. well, I trust what I know, basically. Um, I, we use the Bloomberg a lot for data. Um, we use uh, a lot of different data sources. There's uh, Trefis provides data on the Thinkorswim platform that the clients use, and we go to that. More so what I kind of trust is um, I, I kind of trust the market to some extent to, to hash things out for it. You have to be careful, I think, as a commentator to talk about the market being wrong. I think what you try and do is – start with this kind of web of how the economy and markets connect. That's kind of what I'm always thinking about is how do all these different things connect? Because they all do. Mm -hmm. Everything does. And weaving in between them and finding where some of those connections are, are breaking down or, or where they don't meet their usual logic is what becomes newsworthy to me. Um, so it's kind of a cop-out answer, but a lot of that is honestly watching the market, watching where things change. I don't do as much reading as people would think. I do a lot of engaging in markets and I, the producers and a team of people that we built up to learn about markets, they're really good and they do a lot of that and they'll present a bunch of ideas. Here are the things, here's all the news headlines for all the main you know, websites and news sources. Which ones do we want to cover? And we try and figure out the ones that are most unique from what you might expect. That's what kind of drives our news coverage. So that kind of leads into the whole concept of fake news. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that I believe that outside of the National Enquirer, most news is truly fake, but most news yeah. outlets have some sort of position or spin on something. Yes. Um, how can the average person who doesn't, maybe they've got a nine to five job, they don't have the ability to consume financial data all day long. How can they know what to look at or what sources should they be considering that are less biased than others or that maybe are going to be less mm -hmm. sensationalized than others? Um. Not to sound like too Gordon Gecko, but I think that um, places where um, there is money at stake and capital at stake are probably the most trustworthy. To make that clear, like for example, I go to Seeking Alpha a lot for news headlines on companies. All right, 
I don't read the articles from Joe Schmo about what they want to buy or sell, but it's a great place to start off a morning with just every mover in the market. You know, a, a, a site like that is very simple in terms of what they want. All they're doing is just giving information about, you know, what happened on earnings, why the stock went up, why the stock went down. You have to be very careful with stuff, I think, where there's a potential for kind of corruption of, of the message that comes across. So direct company sources and news outlets that just compile that information in aggregators, I get a lot of the kind of news flow from that. So, you know, when I start off in the morning, that's where I go. That doesn't mean I'm not going to read Bloomberg. I'm not going to read the Wall Street Journal or anything like that. I do. But I'm always kind of taking it with the grain of salt because it's, it's kind of it's just hard to know sometimes. You know, I, I think the tax move last year was was a good example of this because I at Bloomberg, one of the subjects that I covered a lot were, were buybacks and the nature of share repurchases in markets. And to me, it was always just a quantitative thing. Here's how much they buy back. Here's what they've bought back in history. Here's what they say they're going to buy. Here's the effect it has on earnings. And I never even really thought about it as like a political thing. And then all of a sudden, it's like every news outlet wants to write about buybacks from a political perspective. And I was like, are you kidding me, guys? None of you even cared about um, – and I'm not talking about the financial news sources. It was everywhere. And it still is becoming this political tool. So a lot of this kind of came out of the tax cut and there was – it wasn't that hard to just kind of look at the numbers, look at the data, say, OK, there was a massive rise in buybacks, but it's a trend that's been going on for 10 years. Is this year's annual change in the buyback rate something alarming or going to destroy the American economy? I don't know, but it's just an extension of a trend basically. Uh, the CapEx was kind of another example where a lot of people were eager to paint certain economic activities – because they viewed it as being positive or negative, a, a political party. But in reality, there was a big jump in CapEx and then it stopped. So uh, it's not really hard to, to look at this data and say, yes, it might have had this effect. It might not have been lasting. Um, but there's, I, I think that there is just a, a, an adherence to, to the data that, that um, is sometimes easily corrupted. But um, you just have to get the original source, basically. And if you don't have the original source to the data, then uh, try and find the places that just kind of you know aggregate and compile that because once there's a, a tone and editorial introduced, it gets risky. What would be one piece of investment advice that you would offer to listeners from Watch your TV. years of experience? No, besides <laughs> that, come on now. The years of experience is probably um, it's probably not to dive straight into it, and the, I think the most simple one to anybody is if everybody's talking about something, the more you need to question it. I've always kind of had a contrarian streak, but I think that the you know explosion of crypto and all that the past couple of years is a good example of how people often kind of use opportunity to their advantage. And for your average person, they have a tendency to get sucked into things that they think is going to make them rich quick. So I think that as I think about this question during my answer, it's probably to be patient. Um, I think that's the biggest one. Whether you think you want to be a trader, you think you want to be an investor, or you know you just want to put your general 401k and income to work, I think patience is probably a really big part of it. And that patience is built from learning, which starts at places like what we're doing, but other places as well. And I, I think that's the most important part is, is to be informed. The website is tdameritradenetwork.com. That is Oliver Rennick. He's the host of Morning Trade Live and Market on Close on TD Ameritrade Network. Oliver, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, guys. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it.
Brian, thank you very much for joining me as well. My pleasure. Oliver, it was fantastic. This was great. Coming up next week on Your Money, Your Wealth, economist Dr. Chris Thornburg from Beacon Economics returns to the show at long last with his thoughts on the California real estate market and how he thinks the economy is doing right now. In the midst of all of this recession talk of late, visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com to subscribe, share the podcast, spread the YMYW love, and to send in your money questions and comments. Because whatever is on your mind, Joe and Big Al will provide their ever-so-wise insight And I might even post a video of their response in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, just like I did for this first one. Nick writes in uh, from Moreno Valley, California. No idea. Riverside. Riverside. Riverside County. Okay. Okay's been doing the show prep, Joe. I already knew that. Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) so, um, that's what, northeast of us and it's in between San Diego. here and Orange County. That's correct. It is between us. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's it's uh, it's it's kind of on the way to Las Vegas if you drive there. Got it. Now you haven't been in ten years. I know. <laughs> I have not been because to they Vegas. banned you from the city on your thirty fifth birthday. Yes, exactly. That's a well. You put uh, our <laughs> founder in the hospital. <laughs> Wow, that sounds like a story that he's uh, telling. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll bring, talk that talk about that later. Uh, yeah. Um, so, okay. <laughs> Joe and Al, I love listening to your show. I've learned a lot over the years. I've got a question. I have taxable, Roth, IRA, and 401k. Where should I have the total bond market and international bond be allocated to lessen my tax burden? Please advise. Well, Nick, we do not give advice on this program. Uh, so that is out of the question. <laughs> we can we just, give you some talk. ideas. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And then because Nick's going to you know, send us another email and saying, hey, I did what you told me 10 years ago. And right. the international didn't, bonds didn't grow very, didn't much. Grow very much. Yeah. And so um, I want to um, sue you. So we give zero advice on this program. But if I were putting bonds in an account and I had taxable or Roth or tax-deferred, it would go in the tax-deferred account. Tax-deferred, which is the IRA or 401k. And the reason, it's not that complicated. Bonds have a lower expected rate of return. We just talked about they're that safe. last segment. They're, they're safe. They don't go down very much, but they don't go up a lot. But they're, they're, they're safety in your portfolio. If you put those in the Roth IRA, well, that's the portfolio that's, or that's, the, that's the account where you're going to pay no tax. You actually want your high-growth assets in the Roth. And if you put them in the taxable account where you could have capital gains, well, that's you, you want your growth in that account too. So in the in the 401k and the IRA, which is the tax deferred accounts, that's where you want the safer uh, uh, investments. So it all depends too on how much money that Nick has, where how old Nick is, when he needs distributions, how much that he needs to pull from each well, account. Well, good, good point because because sometimes we'll say we'll say. You know, put certain asset classes, and, and someone has like two dollars in non-qualified, and and five dollars in a Roth, and everything in, in the um, and it's two like, million dollars in, and then so then well then you have to put everything in the IRA, right? Because you know what I've seen before, Al, because people listen to the show <clears throat> for like thirty seconds, and then they implement something. Yes, right? we have seen that and heard about that all the time. <laughs> you know, and so it's like okay, well, keep your safer assets in the retirement account. So bonds, you want to keep bonds, or you know, real estates, things that are not necessarily tax efficient in your retirement account. So you're right. I mean, so they have a million dollars in a retirement account, they have, you know, 10,000 in a Roth, 
and then they got maybe 20,000 outside. Yeah. So then what do they do? You no, know, they put 20,000 in their outside accounts or brokerage account in some, you know, stock mutual funds sure. in the Roth stock mutual funds and the whole million dollars in the retirement account in the bonds. In and it's got this portfolio didn't <laughs> this work portfolio out very well. sucks. It's like <laughs> What, no, what are the, you guys doing here? The, the first step is to figure out what kind of portfolio you need, right. and then you figure out where to put those pieces. Yeah, so if you need 60% stocks, 40% bonds, 80% stocks, 20% bonds, you kind of figure that out first. Yeah, the other factor here, Joe, is if you are in distribution mode, so you're already retired and you're pulling money out of your accounts, you're going to want to have some safe money in the Roth and some safe money in your savings account, non-retirement account, because you're, you're pulling money out. So you just have to be aware of that, too. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Is Things change so much with the advice that they need to get or that we give. Um, or, I guess, not advice, because we don't give advice yeah. on this <laughs> show. Just yes. Because as you age, things change in life. As things happen, things change all the time. So yeah, you as, just as, kinda, your, as your situation a, changes, you got you have to kind of look at changing things around. Also, to be aware of when, when you have an emergency cash fund, that, that should be outside of your retirement accounts, and that should be in a money market or maybe a short-term CD. So what do you think about uh, we get this argument, question, or thought, is that um, I have a line of credit for my cash reserve. Yes, I used to have that mindset, too. No, you're a big real estate guy. Yeah, I, I don't need cash. Yeah. But I, here's here's what did happen to me, because that's what I did. I had, right, you had no cash. You just said, I'll live off I, a line of credit, and I'll yeah. just have everything invested. Yeah, just exactly, right, in yep. real estate or whatever. And so then the Great Recession hit and the mortgage crisis, and then all of a sudden they said, you can no longer draw from your line of credit. <laughs> We're freezing it. Really? I paid every month. <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> so You must have me so confused with another yeah. clope eye. Yeah. <laughs> That's now my cousin. Yeah, that guy is, a, <laughs> is That's a different story. Yeah. So send him this letter, because I have very good credit, ma'am. Right. All right. Uh, we got James from Washington State here. Hey, love your podcast. Uh, the two of you both crack me up. Oh, thank you, James. That's nice. All right, Jimmy. I wonder if he likes being called Jimmy. <laughs> Considering he put James as his name, probably not. Joey. Know. Well, that's, that's fine. I'm, yeah, I that's, can that's, call that's, me Joey. That's endearing. It's better than it's, Jill. It, yeah. <laughs> um, I've been contributing to my employer 401k for 20 years and have saved up over $1 million. First of all, congratulations, James. Very well. If you got a million dollars, we call you James. <laughs> if you had 10 grand, we call you Jimmy. Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> You're right about that. You know, it's back to James. Yeah. I've been saving for 40 years, and I have 42,000 saved. All right, Jimmy, let's <laughs> see. Let's see what you got going on. All right, I just researched and found out that indeed uh, they do have a Roth 401k option uh, with this plan. Cool. Now, my question is: Do you think it would be best to stop contributing to the pre-tax 401k and switch over? For the remaining 10, 15 years of my career to the Roth 401k option uh, from zero, I think I will continue to be in the same tax bracket as I am now when I retire, but I like all the advantages you were pointing out with the Roth options. Interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, James, appreciate the email. Um, well, I'm sure Al will give you the mathematical um, answer. <laughs> I'm going to give you the same answer as you. Yeah. The answer is yes. Y yeah, yes. for sure. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. 
Yeah, I mean, you got a million bucks, James, and how old James is twenty years. So, and he's going to work another ten to fifteen years. So, I'm guessing what is he? 50, 55? Yeah, fifty, forty-five, fifty. Right. So, let's say if he works another fifteen years, that million dollars in his four hundred one k plan is what two and a half million bucks, given a conservative six percent growth rate. If he adds zero dollars to it, I agree with that. So now James is sixty, sixty-five years old. His four hundred one k, if he stopped contributing to it. Entirely, right? Just a compounding of interest. Ten years at six percent, roughly will double, right? Seven percent. So now he's got two million. He's working another fifteen. So two and a half ish million in in that ballpark. Sure. So then he's going to have Social Security. Um, and if he's at fifty, he's got over a million bucks saved. You know, I'm 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 guessing he's probably in a decent income tax bracket. Probably. Um, but it, he's he's saying he's going to be in the same bracket now versus retirement. Yeah, I guess what what I was going with that he would have a decent Social Security benefit. Sure, right. So he'll have Social Security benefits. He'll have a nice four hundred one k plan. But it sounds now with his savings pattern, everything is going to be taxed at ordinary income. Right. And so Al, do me a favor. Let's say if he um, puts in twenty five thousand dollars into a, a investment at six percent. For the next uh, 15 years, what's the future value of that? 25, start with zero principal, uh, 600,000. All right, so now let's say, James, you save the 25 grand into the Roth option of your 401k plan. Over the next 10, 15 years, you get 6% on the money. Now you got 600 grand. So now you got about 3 million bucks, but at least a, a quarter of that. Is tax free, right? Right. Then you have real control over your tax brackets long term, and if you're going to be in the same tax bracket as you are now and in the future, I think the Roth option is by far the better one to go. Yeah, and so now you can look at your investment portfolio, and certain asset classes are going to have higher expected returns, and certain ones lower. What I mean by that is stocks have higher expected returns than bonds. But you need to have bonds in your retirement portfolio for safety. So you put the higher expected return accounts in the Roth IRA where you get rewarded for that growth because you pay no tax on that growth. And now all of a sudden you have the same portfolio, but you get to keep more of it because your higher returning assets are in the tax-free pool. Yeah, I would change how you're saving too, James, is that that now you're putting the, let's say, I'm guessing you're maxing out the 401k plan. It's $25,000. And I would go into, in, because a lot of times people will save into their 401k plans. Hey, I want 20% in large cap, 20% in mid cap, you know, international bonds, whatever, right? They kind of break that stuff up on their contributions. Sure. I would do something maybe a little bit different in this case because he already has a fairly large sum in the retirement account. My contributions on a you know biweekly or how often he's paid would go into an asset class that's fairly volatile, you know emerging markets for instance, smaller right. companies, absolutely no bonds, right? So you want an asset class that jumps around here because you're buying into those stocks every two weeks, right? So it's called dollar cost averaging. So you want to be safe with the million dollars that you've already accumulated. Right. So, but over the next 10, 15 years, as you're saving, you can take on a lot more risk with those dollars because you're just putting it in, um, you know, every couple of weeks. Yeah. Plus, as I just said, as you want that and, growth. And you want that growth in the Roth. You want that growth anyway. in the Roth, right? So, that's, I, I totally agree. So, yeah. And one other argument that we get, Al, is that, well, if I'm in the same tax bracket today that I'm going to be in the future, then one, I want to take the tax benefit today. 
because who knows what the future is going to bring. Right. What do you what what what's your argument against that? <laughs> well, we could go through an example, but when you do the mathematics, assuming you have the same investments, right, and you have the same tax rates, you it comes out the same. It it just it just does. I mean, I, we can go through an example, but take my word for it, it comes out the same. But where it becomes better is when you can allocate asset classes with higher expected returns in the Roth and end up with keeping more of what you make. I mean, here's a simple example. But but uh, I think there's more than that though. With the Roth, you know, once he retires, he moves that into a let's say a Roth IRA. There is no required minimum distributions. Sure, he's going to have control over the dollars that he pulls out of those accounts. So he could say, I'm going to pull out X amount of dollars out of my 401k plan that's pre-tax, and then I want to supplement my income. I'm going to take that from the Roth so I don't push myself up into a higher tax bracket. Yeah, partic- You have so much more control. Right, particularly when you have years where you want to get more capital and you have a Roth to pull it out of. Also, Joe, a lot of people don't think about this, and I hate to bring it up, but if he's married, one, is, one spouse will probably survive the other one, and the survivor will now be in a single tax bracket, and they will actually be in a higher tax bracket. Right, so you got to consider that too. Right, so yeah, if you just did the straight in a bubble math, it works out exactly the same. But then life is not in a bubble unless you're the bubble boy. Note to self: add ridiculous bubble boy derail and others to the end of today's episode. Oh, sorry. Uh, If you're like James and trying to decide between contributing to your traditional 401k or your Roth 401k, check out the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com for some additional resources and some previous discussions to help you figure out what's best for you. Of course, you can always scroll down yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click Ask Joe and Al on air for more personalized suggestions. You can send in your questions or your comments as an email or as a voice message, and chances are we're going to play it and talk about it on the podcast. Alan, we did get a recording here. We got a voice recording. Yeah, didn't someone we? left us a message. Right. And they were listening to some podcasts of ours. Yeah, I guess an old podcast. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, it's, it's you can send us anything you want, yeah. folks. And we'll play and it. We'll play it. As demonstrated. As, 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 do we have this gentleman's name? He did not leave his he name. He did not leave his name. Anonymous. So let's, let's just see what he has to say. Hi, I'm listening to podcast number 207. The interview with this guy, Grant Saltier, whatever the heck it is. The guy sounds like a freaking hippie who doesn't, who's just got lucky and is making some money. Who wants to live like their life like he is? I mean, he's a moron. Thank you. All right. Well, that's an opinion. Okay. <clears throat> so he's referring to uh, Grant Sabatier. <laughs> Sabatier. <laughs> it is. I knew Sub- I was, Sub- you were getting ready because you knew I was going Sabatier. there. Sabatier. So, he's part of the FIRE movement, Financial yes, Independence, yeah. Retire Early. Yeah, wrote a book, Financial Freedom. Right. Um, CNBC just tweeted something. He's like, if you make $70,000 a year, you could retire in 10 years. This 34-year-old millionaire explains how. Right. And it's about Sabatier. It is. And so, yeah, this guy, what he did is... He saved 99.5% of his income. <laughs> yeah, extreme saver. Yeah. I think he's the guy that was, uh, he, he had a certain savings amount, and every month he increased it by 1%. That's what I liked about it, because yeah. it's like, okay, you start somewhere. Right. You know, because most people save 2% of their salary. Right. Then, okay, maybe next month you go to 3 But he's like going way out of control. So I, if I recall, I think he got to about 85%. Something stupid. Yeah, yeah. So, it's like, you know... And, and he was, he was um, I mean, Andy, he was what? He was living 
in apartments that his girlfriend didn't even want to come to. Yes. And, yeah, and exactly. And he, he was side hustling like crazy. And right. personally, that doesn't sound like luck to me. That sounds like a lot of really hard work. But yeah, and and I guess so. And and so. But the, he got a, a couple good gigs. Yes, he did. He did tell us that he ended up. He got um, lucky with a couple, and then was able to sell some websites yeah, for a lot of money and stuff and, like that. Know. But then he right. was also flipping camper vans and house sitting for people and babysitting cats and just doing whatever he could to to make money and stick stick it into his his you retirement savings. Well, pay me enough to babysit a cat. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. He did do that. So here's my comment. So the fire movement. It's it's all about living intentionally, spending less, trying to save as much as you possibly can so that you, you don't necessarily have to retire, but so that you could retire, so that you know that you could retire. I think the concept is great. And so Grant is the kind of guy that took this extreme. A lot of people take it way less extreme. Some people don't want to do it at all. They want to live kind of the standard American life and hopefully retire at age 65. The whole point about this is it's just a different way to think about retirement and savings. I'm all for it. Uh, and it, I think... Virtually everybody can learn something from Grant, whether they want to implement 1% of what he says or all of it. I think there's lessons to be learned. Yeah, and I agree with that. But I would like to fast forward 20 years and see all these fire people and see where the hell they are at. Right. You know what I mean? Because a lot of them, I think, are doing things that could get themselves into financial issues, problems. Like our boy that was leveraging up all that real estate and then, you know, passive income because I want to retire at 45 and the 401k is stupid because it's all taxable. You can't touch it till 59 and a half and all this. I mean, they're talking about things that they have no clue. You're a software engineer that has very little financial knowledge. And then you can save a little money. You, You read a couple of books. You do a little side hustle and this and that where... You know, you and I have interviewed a couple of these people. It's like, okay, you're going to retire at four, 40 years old, and, well, how do you take distributions? Well, you take 4%, and it's like, are you kidding me? This is the advice that you're giving, right? And you're a journalist major. No offense. I love journalists, but it's I, I just think you have to be careful and responsible. By all means, save as much as you possibly can. Um do I think Grant's a moron? Absolutely not. Love the guy. Respect him. Uh, but you've got to take things with a grain of salt, too. All right. That's it for us. For Big Al Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. Thanks for listening. Your money or wealth. If you missed them, I've posted our previous conversations with Grant Sabatier in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com so you can listen and make up your own mind as to whether or not he is a lucky hippie moron. Special thanks to Oliver Rennick from TD Ameritrade Network for joining us today. Check him out on Morning Trade Live and check out Brian Perry's previous appearances on Market on Close at tdameritradenetwork.com. For the video, the audio, and the transcript of our interview, links to share and subscribe to the podcast, and a ton of free financial resources, visit the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner, just click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. And here are your derails. We'll see you next week. Oliver Rennick. He's the host of The Morning Trade. Morning because Trade we, Live. Yes, Trade Live. Morning and Trade Live. Market on Close. Which Brian Perry, our director of research, yeah, makes like regular he goes, appearances yeah. on He's there. like, hey, what do you think about Bitcoin? 
And they were like, no, what? no, 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 no. We, we, we talk about the, the market in general. That's the whole point. I say we as if I'm in it. I'm, I'm actually setting it up. But yes, Brian is the one uh, dropping the knowledge. Got it. Dropping the knowledge. Yep. Oh, my. You, that just came out of your mouth. Yes. All you got to do, guys, is go to yourmoneyandwealth.com or folks. That's all you got to do, folks. Folks, yeah. That's more politically correct. I'm from Minnesota, so we say guys. Yeah. And then I remember one time I was in the lobby and I said, hey, guys. We're folks. I was like, oh, God, get the hell out of my office. <laughs> wow. So, I'm kidding. Is that what you said? No, I didn't say that. I you thought, thought it. that. Yeah. No, he's just saying it on the air. Yeah, right. Well, they don't know who they are. <laughs> Alan, Can I, you lived I? your life kind of like the bubble boy. In, in a bubble? Oh, have know. you ever seen the bubble boy? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> Seinfeld? <laughs> I was that guy. <laughs> you know, you you don't do anything out of out of no, the norm. You no, know, you're yeah, very you're very straight and narrow. Drive the speed limit. <laughs> yes, ten and two. <laughs> you're like ten and eight. It's like whoa. Fill up the gas as soon as it hits the red. <laughs> oh my god! You, you've never have you ever filled up your car with gas with the car still running? No, I've not done that. Have you? <laughs> yes, I lived in Minnesota. Oh. You don't shut your car off. You keep yeah. the car running to fill that thing up, or else you'll freeze. I, I, okay, I get it. Anyway, just kind of browsing these email questions. Yeah, well, this we, is the first time I've ever done this. I yeah. mean, some of these are novels now. They're, they're, now know, they're right? taking advantage of our... Right? Uh, but we really we, enjoy your email questions because so just, it gives us... read them no matter how <laughs> yeah, long they are. It doesn't matter. We will answer and, any question and you and throw at us. You'll try to paraphrase it even though you haven't read it. Yeah. That, that's always fun. This thing's like eight pages long. <laughs> hey, and by the way, for those of you that just find our stuff on from 2005 and saying you owe me a gift card, that this stuff's got to expire at some point, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we were giving away gift cards in like 2016 or something like that. I don't even and remember. That was, that was in an email. So she was on our mailing list. And there was a thing in it that said, you know, send... I honestly don't remember that. I don't remember that either. Yeah. So we owe someone $25 Amazon gift card. It's in the mail. Ah, cool. Yeah, if we would give $25 now, we'd be be broke. It'd be tough, right? (laughs) You you and I (laughs) would be broke. (laughs) 